when all is said and done, your time on earth is through. When you stand before the Lord, as all of us will do, what is it that you'd like to hear him say? I'm guessing it's going to be some version of this. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? It's what we want. It's, it's what Paul expects to hear as he nears the end of his life and says he has a clear conscience. It's what he desires for his son in the faith, Timothy. It's what we all desire for our children as well, that they would be saved and that God will look on them one day and say, well done, good and faithful servant. But how does one attain that standing? How does one become the good and faithful servant? What can we do to be counted faithful by God? This morning as we explore a portion of 2 Timothy chapter 2. We won't find all the answers, but we certainly will find some of them. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we open ourselves now to the power of your word, which is unlike anything in this world. It never returns void. It always accomplishes its purpose. Father, we pray it might accomplish its purpose in our hearts and our minds today, doing exactly what you intend for it to do. Help me to be faithful to it. Let these words be your words. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. So some people endure in the faith and some people do not. That's how we left off last time. That's how the first chapter of 2 Timothy ends with these examples. Figilus and Hermogenes are held up as negative examples. Two of the many from Asia, who had deserted Paul, and Onesiphorus, who diligently searched for Paul in Rome and found him and was a source of refreshment to him, is given to us as a positive example. Some endure in the faith, and some do not. And it's on the heels of, of these examples, especially that last one, which exemplifies faithful ministry, that our passage in 2 Timothy begins today. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Hearers who are familiar with the Apostle Paul's other writings will pick up on echoes of them throughout this letter. In a little bit, we're going to see a piece of Romans shining through. This verse right here, along with some of the imagery that Paul is about to use, puts us in mind of Ephesians chapter 6, a portion of Scripture where the apostle talks about spiritual battles and the armor of God. And Ephesians 6.10 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And that's kind of the import of what we have here in 2 Timothy. Be strong in the Lord. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We understand grace to be the undeserved favor of God. One commentator defines this grace that Paul is talking about this way, he says it's the shorthand that Paul uses to summarize God's limitless, undeserved means of coming to his aid, bearing him through difficulties, and making his labors fruitful. This grace is in Christ Jesus. 
this strength that is needed, this grace of God to live the life of faith is not anything that anyone can provide for themselves. It transcends our natural abilities. Nowhere in this epistle is Paul encouraging Timothy to be self-reliant or to be independent. He's always pushing him to be God-reliant and God-dependent. The strength he needs and the strength that we all need must be provided from without, from above. And in fact, it has been. In verse 7 of chapter 1, we're told that God does not give us a spirit of fear. Your translation may say a spirit of timidity, a spirit of cowardice, a spirit that desires to flee the battle. That's not the spirit that God gives us, but rather he gives us a spirit of power. This dunamos, dynamite, this power is part of the word that is translated strengthened in our first verse. Be empowered is what Paul is saying. Be empowered, be enabled, be made strong by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I read that and I thought, well, how is one strengthened by grace? How does Timothy follow this command? How does God's undeserved favor empower a person? Maybe George Beverly Shea captured a little bit when he sang this. There's a wonder of sunset at evening. The wonder of sunrise I see. But the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. If you are a Christian today, you are loved by God. You are chosen by God. You are cleansed by the shed blood of God's Son, given for you. You are the recipient of divine and eternal favor. You are the benefactor of rich mercy, an object of amazing grace. You belong to him, and he dwells in you, in his spirit. You possess a holy calling, and along with that calling, you possess everything you need by his spirit to fulfill it. So be strengthened. That is the command. By this knowledge, by the grace of of God, especially maybe in those hard times, in those challenging times when you're tempted to shrink back or quit, be empowered by your understanding of, by your unshakable grip on the reality and blessing of God's favor, which is freely lavished on you because he loves you. That's the first of many imperatives that we find in this section of Paul's letter. It's quickly followed by a second, verse 2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trusted faithful men who will be able to teach others also. As one writer observes, ministry is always involves transmission. It was transmitted from Jesus to Paul and from Paul to Timothy. And now Timothy is given the responsibility to transmit it to others who in turn will be faithful in continuing the process. That is how the gospel message continues to spread and is kept alive. This is the propagation of the gospel. This is the church's succession plan. 
This is what every church should be thinking about, every church should be doing. This is the elders in training program that we have here at UBC that we have engaged in the past and that we will be firing up again soon. This is the reason for our preaching cohort because teachers and preachers don't just pop up out of the ground. They are trained. And I'm grateful that we are a church that recognizes and honors this and understands its value. That our congregation at United Baptist supports and participates in the training of preachers. That our pulpit is available for preachers to learn and to practice at times. I'll tell you, the only way that you get good at preaching is what? Preaching. There's only one way you get good at preaching. It's by preaching. And those first few messages and as you get as you get as you get further into ministry you think those first few hundred messages horrible terrible i remember my first sermon i thought i'd be up there for like a half hour i think i was up here for six minutes it's like oh is that over that's what i say to everybody who's learning to preach don't worry this too shall pass what a blessed congregation we have to be willing to support people as they develop the craft and the gift that God has given them to proclaim his word, to be faithful ministers of the gospel. This is, this is how it spreads. This is what God wants us to do. And you know what? I mean, years ago, this church used to be, there was a music director here named Sylvia McEldowney. Some of you remember Mrs. Mack, our choir director. She also happened to be a, a violin instructor. And this church was a place where people could come and do their recitals. And sometimes our church members would do their first performances in the evening service. Have you ever endured the first performance? <laughs> This, this whole sermon series is about endurance, so let's talk about what it means to sit and listen to a first-year violin student with all those squeaky, squawky, seemingly disconnected notes that hardly make a tune. Great musicians start somewhere, though, don't they? And great preachers and teachers start somewhere, too. And this church is just kind of like, as far as I've known, always been that church that says, come on in and give it a go. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy, commending to him. I've given you the gospel. Make sure you give that gospel to somebody else. And make sure they give it to somebody else and to somebody else. Praise the Lord that this church thinks it's a good use of my time to train men, to train elders, to have a preaching cohort. I thank you for that. Sharing the gospel. This is a pastoral epistle. So of course, pastors have to share the gospel, but I do need to point out this isn't just for pastors now, is it? This is the great commission given to us by Jesus. You find it in Matthew 28, to go and make disciples. Or as you are going, really, go. As you are going, make disciples, which means in the family, in the home, in your workplace, in the school, wherever you go, talk about Jesus preach the gospel, share the gospel with others. That's the command. And trust it that it can be spread. Third verse, third imperatives. Share in suffering, King James Version, endure hardship as a good soldier. So 
So Paul's reinforcing the battle motif here. He exhorts his colleague and son of the faith to share in suffering as a soldier in the army of God. Think back to Ephesians chapter 6, the fact that all of us who name the name of Christ are involved in a cosmic conflict between good and evil, a spiritual battle. Every one of us is engaged in this. That's what Paul is pointing out. You're a soldier in the army. And then he gives three examples, and he expands his metaphor quite a bit. So let's take a quick look at the attributes and the motivations behind them. If you're following along, we're in verse 4. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. What's encouraged here for the faithful servant of Christ is single-mindedness, is focus. Or Paul could put it this way, don't get distracted. Don't get distracted from the mission. Do, do any of you have problems getting distracted? <laughs> I know I have problems getting distracted. Very distractible kind of fellow. And so this is great, great counsel to us. Be single-minded. Don't get distracted. Fight the right battles. And then verse 5. Second attribute, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The virtue extolled here is discipline, play by the rules. Paul's changing metaphors on us. We went from a soldier, now we're to an athlete. And he's saying to that athlete, if you're competing as, as an athlete, you can't cheat. You have to play by the rules. You can't take shortcuts. You can't just go out of bounds. It's football season, nearing the end. Some of you are happy about that. I'm not. I always grieve this time of year, but my grief started a long time ago. <laughs> like at the beginning of the year. You know what I'm talking about. But anyway, I think about these. See how distracted I get? I think about the kickoff. And I think about how these grown men, these 250-pound men are running full steam I would never be the guy to catch that ball for sure, but they're running, running down the field to make a play. What you can't do, it's illegal, you can't run out of bounds and avoid everybody and then run right back in and make the play. It's illegal. You have to stay in bounds. You have to compete according to the rules. That's what Paul's saying. And then Next verse, it is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crop. So the desired attribute here is hard work, a hardworking farmer, changing metaphors on us again. So we go from soldier to athlete. Now he's talking about farmer, being a farmer. Farming is hard work. We all know that. Even if we don't farm ourselves, we can appreciate what it takes. It also requires an element of faith. Think about that. A farmer plants a seed and then just has to trust what's happening under there. You can't pull it up to see how it's doing. Okay? <laughs> you wait patiently for the reward. Those are the attributes that Paul extols, but now the motivations. Why? Why is it important for Timothy? Why is it important for us as believers to stay focused, to play by the rules, and to work hard? Well, first off, we want to be single-minded to please the one who enlisted us, he said, to please the one who enlists us. And Philip Towner put it this way in his commentary. He said, the soldier's goal is to please or satisfy the wishes of the commander who expects nothing less than complete attention to duty so that the military objectives will be accomplished. We're to stay focused on our position and on our commander so that we can fulfill his orders, so we can do what he wants us to do. And discipline. We have to be disciplined and compete according to the rules 
in order to achieve or receive the crown at the end of the race. If you want the prize, you've got to play according to the rules, is what Paul says. If you don't want to be disqualified, you've got to play according to the rules. Now, in the 1980 Boston Marathon, some of you will remember this name, Rosie Ruiz was declared the winner in the female division until it came to light that she had not run the whole race. In fact, some believe she jumped into the race about a half mile before it's finished, which is my idea of a marathon, by the way. And I probably still couldn't finish. But anyway, she, she comes flying across the finish line. She's first. She, she gets the crown. She gets the wreath. She gets the accolades. They figured that out, and eight days later, that crown was taken away. You have to compete according to the rules so you don't lose your crown, so you don't get disqualified. More modern names like Lance Armstrong, Pete Rose, Tanya Harding. These are examples of athletes who broke the rules and, and, and they were banned from their sports and they were banned. Their rewards were taken away. The faithful Christian must compete according to the rules in order to not be disqualified at the end of the race in order to receive the crown of life. And lastly, we are to be hardworking and to have faith, to patiently endure so that we can be blessed by our work. There are no good farmers who are lazy farmers. In fact, as one commentary put it, lazy people make bad farmers. It wasn't in all caps, but I felt like saying that. <laughs> they also make bad Christians. If someone would follow Christ, he must have a dedicated work ethic, a commitment to the task at hand. Anyone willing to undertake austerity and industry will have the first share of the crops, which in this case indicates fruitfulness. Now, we're only halfway through this letter, and... Um, all along, Paul is encouraging Timothy to be, well, he's basically saying to him, not in a proud way, because Paul understands that everything he's doing, he's doing in the strength of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. But he's basically saying to Timothy, I'd like you to follow me. I want you to follow my example. Really, 2 Timothy is a longer version in some way of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, when he said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So, Really, Paul is saying to Timothy, you've seen my example, and I want you to emulate it. If you have your Bible with you, I'd like you to turn quickly to 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, and this is what he says. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. Think soldier. I have finished the race. Think athlete. I have kept the faith. Think farmer. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Think reward, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's not asking Timothy to do anything that he hasn't done or isn't willing to do. He knows. He has lived what faithful endurance entails. And he's readying himself now to collect this prize 
A prize that will be his, but not his alone. A prize that will be awarded to all who love the Lord by the Lord himself. And it is to the Lord that Paul now directs Timothy's attention. To the ultimate example, to the greatest example of faithfulness. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ. Remembering Jesus is one of the ways that Timothy is going to be continuously strengthened by his grace. It's something that we all need to do, don't you think? Remember Jesus. It's certainly one of the reasons we celebrate the Lord's table on a regular basis. It's why Jesus told us as often as we take the bread, as often as we take the cup, what? You do this in remembrance of me. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, says that when we gather at the Lord's table, every time we gather to this supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We remember Jesus so that we can be strengthened, so that we can be empowered by the grace that is ours through him. And of course, it's not just the supper, is it? It's baptism. I'm going to touch on that in just a second. It's the reading of the word. It's praying. It's singing. It's preaching. It's all that a worship service is. All that is designed to bring the scenes before us perpetually of the glories of the gospel. In the cross-centered life, C.J. Mahaney wrote this. He said, if there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's the gospel. And I don't mean passionate only about sharing it with others. I mean passionate about thinking about it, dwelling on it, rejoicing in it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. Only one thing can be of first importance to each of us, and only the gospel ought to be. So what we read now in 2 Timothy is Paul's command, remember another command, remember Jesus Christ. It's a continuous command. So what it says really is remember and keep remembering. Remember and keep remembering Jesus Christ. Remember and keep remembering the one who was not distracted from his mission, who did not get entangled in the cares of life, who lived and died to please his father. Remember and keep remembering the one who did not just compete according to the rules, but fulfilled all of them with his perfect obedience. Remember. And keep remembering the one who not only worked hard and sowed seeds of faith, but allowed himself to be buried, saying in the efficacy of his own death, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. You see, Christ's resurrection wasn't just a historical event, not just a one-off thing that we remember once a year at Easter. It has ongoing implication because, catch this, Jesus was raised and Jesus is risen. Okay? He is alive now and he is alive forevermore. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is interceding for his church. He has gone to prepare a place for us. Can you imagine that? Jesus is getting your place ready. And someday he's coming back to receive us to himself. Amen. Remember that. Paul says you need to be strengthened for the trials and the burdens and the struggles and the challenges of life. Remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. 
Remember the offspring of David. Remember Jesus is the Messiah. Remember Jesus is the son of David, spoken of by the prophets, fulfilled, fulfilled Scripture's promises when he came and gave himself. Remember the faithful Savior who accomplished our salvation. Literally in this phrase, the offspring of David is the seed of David, and it is a direct fulfillment of the prophecy in 2 Samuel 7. Verses 12 to 13, it says, when your days are fulfilled, so this is spoken to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Jesus is the victorious king of an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will never end, of which Paul and Timothy and all of us who name the name of Christ as Lord and Savior are citizens. Remember Timothy. Remember Christian, the one who suffered and died and overcame for you. Think on him, this man of sorrows, this suffering servant, now raised up from the dead. After all the hardships of this life, let this reality strengthen and encourage you to bear your trials. Simple phrases stick with me. None more stickier, I don't think, than the words of our dear departed Rosabelle Clark, who would not want to be quoted in a worship service, <laughs> but who isn't here to stop me. <laughs> and who said of Jesus... He died for me. I can live for him. He died for me. I can live for him. That's the point here. That's what Jesus is saying. This is why you can carry on. What he has done must be told. What he has done must be shared. What he has done is worth suffering for. This is why Paul doesn't give up. It's why Paul doesn't shut up. It's why he and why you and I can persevere in the faith. But Paul goes on. He says, I may be bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. I, I'm a little envious of Paul's heavenly perspective. Do you ever get that way when you read scripture? Man, I wish I could be a little bit more like that. I aspire to that. I aspire to... to get to the place where, like Paul, I have this ability to live in the big picture. His ability to, to, to live in the big picture is truly admirable. He said, my experience is this. When trouble comes, it can feel like the walls are closing in. And, and I readily become myopic. I, I think that's the right word. Focused. Not on the author and perfecter of my faith, which is what the Bible tells me to do, to focus on Jesus, to remember Jesus, I become more focused, sadly, on the circumstances, on the trial, on the challenge, on the issue, on the enemy, on the trouble. But Paul, no, no. Paul, not so much. Paul, rotting in a Roman cell. Not so much. He maintains his faith in God's grand scheme, even though he's in an awful predicament. 
I might be bound. I'm chained as a criminal. An innocent man chained. I, I have no freedom. But they can bind me. Even so, the word of God is not bound. What a beautiful, wonderful attitude. What a perspective he has. The grave couldn't, couldn't restrain Jesus. These Roman chains cannot restrain the good news of the gospel. And therefore, he says, for this reason, because, because the word is not bound, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Whatever comes my way, Paul says, I'm going to bear it. I'm going to continue ministering the gospel for the sake of those whom God has chosen to be saved. And I will keep sharing the word. And I will hope uh, in Christ. Because you never know who those people are that are to be saved. And you never know what God might do. Maybe Paul has a way of seeing the good in things or the big picture. or uh, Seizing the opportunities present right in the middle of the very situations that people intended for his harm. Maybe he's able to see the good and the potential in those things because he's seen it play out so many times in his own life. Do you remember during his first imprisonment, he wrote to the Philippians. I love that little book, Philippians, very tender book, very, very sweet book. He's writing to encourage, he's in prison. He's writing to encourage them. They're worried about him, and he's saying, whoa, 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 no, this is a good thing. So listen, Philippians chapter 1, 12 to 14, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard <laughs> and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I want you to know, dear brethren, that what has happened to me is good. The circumstance might not look good. It might not feel good. But listen to what has happened. So many more people have heard about Jesus now. And the people that already knew Jesus are emboldened because I'm speaking about Jesus. And it's working out just fine. That's the Apostle Paul. So take heart, brothers and sisters, in the midst of ministry struggles, in the midst of life struggles. God is at work. God is at work. Your God who loves you is at work and your story is still being written. He loves you. He never slumbers. He never sleeps. He never takes his eyes off you. Trust in those things. This is what the Bible teaches us. Boy, it is his delight to give beauty for ashes. This is our God. This is who Isaiah says is the one who gives the oil of joy instead of mourning. This is our God who gives us a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And all for the splendor of his glory, the display of his glory. So we wrap it up now. Verse 11, the saying is trustworthy. When Paul says this, he says this in a few other places. When Paul says this, he's saying, you can, you can count on what you're about to hear. You can count on what I'm about to write. This is like Charles Stanley. I don't know if you ever listened to Charles Stanley. Uh, but every once in a while, he would be preaching along, and he would say, now listen, now listen. When we say that, you kind of perk up your ears. Like, I wasn't, you know what? I haven't been listening, but I'm listening now. Because what, what he wants to say next is, is important. Or you can think of Jesus saying, and it's written, Verily I say unto you, truly, truly, I, Jesus, we have tr Jesus has to say, truly, truly. 
Verily, if you grew up with that language, he's saying you can hang your hat on this. You can count on this. That's what Paul says. If we've died with him, we'll also live with him. So before we heard the sound of the epistle to the Ephesians, now we hear echoes of Romans. Romans chapter 6, to be precise. I don't know. Is the men's group past Romans 6? Where are you? Do you pass Romans 6? Congratulations. <laughs> it's not easy to get through the book of Romans. So here we are, Romans 6. Everyone who's in Christ is united in Christ's death and joined to him by faith and by the Spirit. That's what Paul's teaching there. When Jesus died for us on the cross, he died our death. Therefore, Paul and anyone who receives Jesus Christ as Savior can say, as he did to the Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. That's what that means. I am crucified with Christ. In Romans 6, this is how Paul argues it, verses 5 and 8. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been set free from sin. Hallelujah. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. If we have died with him, we also will live with him. We will know new life now through the Holy Spirit of God in us and we will have eternal life with him when we are raised from the dead as he was raised from the dead. This is the promise of scripture. That is the spiritual reality of union with Christ. It's also the imagery of baptism. As we plunge one beneath the water, we are buried in the likeness of his death. And as we rise out of that water, we are raised to newness of life. If we die with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. The word translated endure here means to maintain a belief or course of action in the face of opposition. And this is really the thrust of the whole of 2 Timothy, faithful endurance. And the message here is a simple one. If we persevere, we will reign. If we hold on, if we stay at it, if we don't give up, if we trust in Christ to the end, we will reign. Perseverance is the condition for blessedness in the life that is to come. And if we will walk with the Lord in this world, we will reign with the Lord in the world that is to come. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Paul turns it back now to the negative. Now that's not news. If we deny him, he will deny us, is it? Jesus made this statement. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 10. Many of you are joining us in our winter reading plan. So you read these words not long ago. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, Jesus says, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And to not receive him is to deny him. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus as Lord cannot expect his blessing. Commentator Robert Yarborough puts it this way. He says, God knows and keeps his own. But those who show by their belief and actions that Christ is not their Lord cannot expect God's approval in this age or the next. Those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus as Lord will suffer a fate exactly opposite of the ones who endure 
to reign with him. They will be eternally separated from him in hell. He will say to those ones, we find this in Matthew 25. So, so I started by asking, what do you want to hear Jesus say when you see him? Good and Well done, good and faithful servant, but he will say this to others. Depart from me. You who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go away, Jesus said, to eternal punishment. But the righteous, to eternal life. Friend, if you were to pass from earth this very day, are you confident of where you would spend eternity? Are you confident of how you would be greeted by Jesus Christ? Will it be well done, good and faithful servant, or will it be depart from me? I never knew you. Do you know that Jesus Christ came into this world not to condemn it, but to save it? That on the cross he willingly took the punishment for all of your failures? All of your missteps, all of your rebellion, he took that on himself and he atoned for your sin on that cross by shedding his own blood. That he did this so you might not perish, but you would have everlasting life. And that you receive this gift by acknowledging him Believing in your heart, professing with your mouth before men, Jesus is Lord. If you acknowledge him before men, he will acknowledge you before his Father in heaven. If you deny him, he will deny you. What Paul is saying to Timothy is what Jesus said in Matthew's gospel is what David shared with his son. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father, and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. If you seek him, he will be found. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. And some of this language in the Bible, we want it to say something different. We want it to say something along the lines of, if you get it wrong down here, you get a couple more chances. It's not how it's written, is it? All we need to get it right down here is given us. And what is right to do is to acknowledge Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord, to be saved. Finally, Paul writes, if we are faithless, now here's a twist. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I think on the heels of if, if we deny him, he'll deny us. You come to, if we are faithless to him, he's going to be faithless to us. That's only fair. That's not what it says, does it? If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he can't deny himself. But now we've got to ask, well, what does this mean? Does it, does it mean that it doesn't matter how I respond to God? Does it mean that I don't have to have faith? Because if that were the case, that flies in the face of a lot of other scripture. How about in Hebrews where it says, without faith it is impossible to please God. 
Or how about in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk or actually in the book of Galatians and again in Hebrews and in Romans, the just shall live by what? The just shall live by faith. So it does matter that we have faith. And Romans 6 exhorts us not to presume on the grace of God, that we cannot continue in sin hoping that grace would abound. So it does matter how I respond to God. So what does this mean? If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Well, that's going to depend on your understanding of faithless. Because if we take faithless to refer to those regrettable moments or seasons, where for whatever reason, for whether it's fear of man or selfishness or straight-up rebellion, we demonstrate a lack of trust in God, and we go and do our own thing, as the writer of Come Thou Found says, prone to wander, Lord, I, I feel it. If that happens to us, surely God is faithful and willing to forgive and restore us to himself. And this is like a theme throughout the Bible, right? Much of the Bible is exactly this plea that God is speaking to the wanderer saying, return to me, return to me, return to me. And see if I will not relent. See if I will not forgive. And if I, if I will not restore. So there's definitely an element of this. Most of the heroes of the faith, when you think about them, had moments of weakness, moments of faithlessness. Moses, Abraham, David. And the New Testament, most famously, would be Peter. Denying his own Savior and Lord, his best friend in the world, and yet he, he let him down. But God was good. In those moments of faithlessness, God remained faithful, and he certainly is faithful to restore when we seek his forgiveness. If that's our understanding of faithless, then we take heart in knowing that God is faithful even in the times when his people are not. That is true. But should we take that for granted? Because there's another way to understand this. If we understand faithless as being truly devoid of faith, that is to be settled in a state of unbelieving, then verse 13 does not contain words of encouragement or consolation, but they're words of warning. God's character is unwavering. He judges perfectly. He's able to see the desires of the heart, the thoughts of man. So let none presume on his mercy or think themselves safe who profess a faith in God while persisting in their own way. He will surely, because he is faithful, act exactly as he said he will act in his word without exception because he cannot deny himself. So he will not, in the end, no matter how much we wish it to be, change the rules or accommodate our faithlessness. He cannot deny himself. The faithful will be rewarded, yes. Those without faith will be punished. And Paul believes that Timothy is going to be obedient for sure. But in this letter, he doesn't lower the stakes at all, does he? He knows that Timothy is weak, and he knows that Timothy is prone to falling back. And he doesn't want that to happen because the consequences could be desire could be dire. Perseverance is a condition of blessedness in the kingdom in the world that is to come. Timothy, hold fast. Be strengthened by the grace of God within you. C.K. Barrett observes this. A word, a word of hope to end on for all of us. Beyond warfare is victory. Beyond the athlete's effort is the prize, and beyond agricultural labor 
is the crop. So press on. Press on. Endure. Our Father in heaven, you have graciously provided us all that we need. Help us to take advantage of that. Help us to love you well. Help us to run this race well. Help us to think about the stakes. Help us not to gamble with our life, knowing that truly we may make a profession of faith outwardly, but inwardly we are still our own sovereigns. Lord, deliver us from that and help us to find the freedom and the goodness that is in you and in surrender to you. We thank you for these words of encouragement to Timothy and recognize very clearly and easily they don't just apply to pastors. There's much here to be said to us. We are your servants. We are the laborers in your fields. Help us to be faithfully enduring the calling which you've placed on us. And thank you for the power to do it. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.